Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a little shout out before we get into today's show. Please think about Perion to support all the shows in the District of Wonders. As you know, we are now a paying market and we need to keep afloat. The most important thing is to keep going. Please pop over to Patreon. Any little amount will, will certainly help keep these shows going. A regular subscription on Patreon is just the way forward to make sure we can put out these shows weekly, pay the writers and just keep going well into the future. We've been going 10 years there now Thanks to all your loyal support. Please keep it open. Pop over to Patreon. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night. A tad late, but congratulations to Joe Hill and his novel, The Fireman, for winning Goodreads' 2016 Reader's Choice Award. I have to admit, it passed my radar completely, but it'll be up next for my reading. I'm on M.R. Carey's Fellside right now, and I have to say it's probably the first book set primarily in a prison that has a supernatural bend to it that I've ever read. But Joe Hill's The Fireman, the copy from Goodreads is... From the award-winning New York Times best-selling author of NOS4A2 and Heart-Shaped Box comes a chilling novel about a worldwide pandemic of spontaneous combustion that threatens to reduce civilization to ashes and a band of improbable heroes who battle to save it, led by one powerful and enigmatic man known as the Fireman. 
looking forward to reading this because I used to worry about spontaneous human combustion as a kid, let alone the popularity of the book. That's right. Remember Unsolved Mysteries? That show had several episodes on spontaneous human combustion, and it freaked me out every time one of those episodes came on. As a kid, I was pretty sure that any person at any time could catch fire and incinerate for no obvious reason. But as kids grow up, I think I put away childish things and forgot that spontaneous combustion was a thing. But here it's back, and I'm looking forward to hear what Joe Hill has done with it. Stick around after our stories tonight for our sixth and final song from our friends, Songs of the Pumpkin Boy. And just a friendly reminder to you authors that we will be opening up submissions in January, which is just over a week away. Our first story comes to us from O.D. Hegre. You may remember his story, It's Just Tearing Me All Apart, from episode 69, which I happen to have narrated. This one is a bit shorter. Odie worked as an academic teacher in biomedical research at the University of Minnesota and then in private industry. He now lives in the Sonoran Desert in Arizona with his wife of over 30 years and their corgi and their chihuahua. Let's give a listen to his story, The Passport. My beer arrives and I turn so I can examine the documents without her noticing. A 36-year-old Canadian beauty traveling to Toronto, seat 2D on United Express 4553. I glance over at long blonde hair and again take in the fragrance of her perfume. I sip the beer and conceal the passport and ticket. As I bend down, I say, Excuse me, miss. She turns. Did you drop these? I rise with the documents held high. She is genuine in her thanks, and over the next ten minutes, I fall head over heels in lust for her. Kathleen Michaels is on her way to meet someone special, she says. Fate robbed them of last Thanksgiving, so this weekend is special. After tonight, they will be together forever. I sip my beer and listen. I am envious of Kathleen's ardor, a level of passion I have never known. Now, the challenge of seducing this woman has become an obsession. Nice talking with you, Kathleen. Good luck, I say. Gotta go catch my flight. I rush back to the ticket counter and change to her flight, booking 2C, the aisle seat next to her. I'll have a couple of hours to work my magic. I stand in the commuter jet doorway. 2D is empty. Seated, I ring the call button. Sorry, Mr. Cage. The attendant's hand sweeps the first-class compartment. The gate agent said you're all alone up here tonight. I smile. What the hell is going on? I sip my beer. My eyes open. The plane shudders, then shakes. Then shakes again. There's a ding, and the fastened seatbelt light comes on. By my watch, twenty minutes have passed. I smell perfume. Through blurred eyes, I see that a woman sits next to me. Her perfume, I realize. It's Kathleen Michaels, and she's smiling. Well, this is quite a surprise, she says, adjusting her belt. The plane bounces slightly. I thought you were going to Fargo. Well, I was, but you changed my mind. Still drowsy, I think it's a pretty good line. She blushes. 
Her perfume wafts over me. My elation lasts a mere ten seconds. I'm married. She holds up her left hand. Didn't intend to mislead you. I'd never noticed the ring. I'm here to meet my husband. I apologize, hiding my embarrassment. No, 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 no. All my fault. No harm. Always wanted to visit Toronto. I lie. After an eternity of silence, I hear another ding. I hold up my empty glass and excuse myself. When I return, she's gone. Ten minutes pass, and only her perfume lingers. Curiosity gnaws at me, and I walk the aisle in coach, down and back. No Kathleen. Seated again, I press the call button. Mr. Cage? Listen, Jean, the woman sitting next to me. Have you seen her? I can't find her on the plane. We bounce again. A galley door swings open. No, Mr. Cage. Just a minute, please. I can hear the irritation in the attendant's voice. She's back, waving the manifest in my face. As I told you before, there is no passenger booked in the seat next to you. Nobody else in first. But that's impossible. Turning, I see the passport and boarding pass lying in 2D. I hand them to her. Jean looks at the stub. Well, I'll be. This is the correct flight and seat now. I watch her face go sheet white. Kathleen Michaels. Oh, my God. The plane bounces again, this time with a loud thud, and the attendant staggers back, falling into the aisle seat across from me. What's wrong? The ding again echoes in the cabin, the red light flashing on. For a moment, Jean doesn't speak, just stares at the passport photo, tears welling in her eyes. I don't understand. Kathy's... Kathy is dead. Last Thanksgiving, a plane crash. I was part of the assigned crew. A delay in Louisville, and I missed the flight. The plane bounces again, now swaying to the right. Another bounce. The intercom crackles. Ah, just a bit of clear air turbulence, folks. Please stay seated, folks. Shouldn't last. Nothing to worry about. I watch the attendant's face turn from sadness to terror. She grabs the boarding pass again. Oh my god. She pushes the stub at me, pointing. My eyes follow her finger to the date. November 27th, 2013. I try to catch my breath. One year ago tonight, Thanksgiving. I swallow hard and look back at Jean. She's scanning the manifest. Oh, oh, this is impossible. Oh my God. Jean is sobbing. She's here. Kathy's here. I look at the list. 2D, Kathleen Michaels. I look at the date, November 27th, 2013. I try to swallow. What damn plane are we on, anyway? Jean is out of her seat now, trying to keep her balance as the plane sways left and right. I reach for her hand. No, I've got to tell the captain! Her voice breaking. Kathleen said... I almost choke on the words. 
she said she was here to meet. I know, I know. The attendant pulls free of my grasp as the plane shudders violently. Her husband. He missed the flight last year as well, and... The color of Jean's eyes has disappeared. Only dark, deep pools remain. And he's the captain. That was O.D. Hegri's The Passport, as read by Joe Samarco. Joe Samarco grew up in Los Angeles, but currently lives in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He's an aspiring voice actor focusing on getting into animation or gaming. He works for Verizon Wireless at his day job. He's always been a proud geek, having a soft spot in his heart for fantasy and sci-fi. He's a big PS3 gamer and watcher of anime, hence his desire to get into those mediums with voice acting. As far as experience go, he's narrated nearly 15 tales for Starship Sofa, has done a little of spots of ads for local radio stations, and has begun working on professional commercial and animation demos. Hopefully, by the time anybody hears this, he'll have brought to life some well-known character. I hopes he knows, but he's nothing if not grandiose. Thank you, Joe. Our second story comes from L.P. Hartley. You may know him from the Go-Between or the Eustace and Hilda trilogy, but this one is going to be a bit shorter than those. Mr. Hartley has an extensive biography and bibliography as well, having spent about 30 of his 76 years on this planet writing. This one we've tried to time to be right about Christmas, as the characters in it may get a visit from Father Christmas. Well, maybe. Let's hear L.P. Hartley's Someone in the Lift. There's someone coming down in the lift, Mummy. No, my darling, you're wrong, there isn't. But I can see him through the bars, a tall gentleman. You think you can, but it's only a shadow. Now, you'll see, the lift's empty. And it always was. This piece of dialogue, or variations of it, had been repeated at intervals ever since Mr. and Mrs. Molden and their son Peter had arrived at the Brompton Court Hotel, where, owing to a domestic crisis, they were going to spend Christmas. New to hotel life, the little boy had never seen a lift before, and he was fascinated by it. When either of his parents pressed the button to summon it, he would take up his stand some distance away to watch it coming down. The ground floor had a high ceiling, so the lift was visible for some seconds before it touched floor level, and it was then, at its first appearance, that Peter saw the figure. It was always in the same place, facing him in the left-hand corner. He couldn't see it plainly, of course, because of the double grille, the gate of the lift and the gate of the lift shaft both of which had to be firmly closed before the lift would work. He had been told not to use the lift by himself, an unnecessary warning, because he connected the lift with the things that grown-up people did, and unlike most small boys, he wasn't over-anxious to share the privileges of his elders. He was content to wonder and admire. 
the lift appealed to him more as magic than as mechanism. Acceptance of magic made it possible for him to believe that the lift had an occupant when he first saw it, in spite of the demonstrable fact that when it came to rest, giving its fascinating click of finality, the occupant had disappeared. If you don't believe me, ask Daddy, his mother said. Peter didn't want to do this, and for reasons, one of which was easier to explain than the other. Daddy would just say I was being silly, he said. Oh no, he wouldn't. He'd never say you're silly. This was not quite true. Like all well-regulated modern fathers, Mr. Molden was aware of the danger of offending a son of tender years. The psychological result might be regrettable. But Freud or no Freud, fathers are still fathers, and sometimes, when Peter irritated him, Mr. Molden would let fly. Although he was fond of him, Peter's private vision of his father was someone more authoritative and awe-inspiring than a stranger seeing them together would have guessed. The other reason, which Peter didn't divulge, was more fantastic. He hadn't asked his father because, when his father was with him, he couldn't see the figure in the lift. Mrs. Molden remembered the conversation and told her husband of it. The lift's in a dark place, she said, and I dare say he does see something. He's so much nearer to the ground than we are. The bars may cast a shadow and make a sort of pattern that we can't see. I don't know if it's frightening him, but you might have a word with him about it. At first, Peter was more interested than frightened. Then he began to evolve a theory. If the figure only appeared in his father's absence, didn't it follow that the figure might be, could be, must be his own father? In what region of his consciousness Peter believed this, it would be hard to say, but for imaginative purposes he did believe it, and the figure became, for him, Daddy in the lift. The thought of Daddy in the lift did frighten him, and the neighbourhood of the lift shaft, in which he felt compelled to hang about, became a place of dread. Christmas Day was drawing near, and the hotel began to deck itself with evergreens. Suspended at the foot of the staircase, in front of the lift, was a bunch of mistletoe, and it was this that gave Mr. Molden his idea. As they were standing under it, waiting for the lift, he said to Peter, Your mother tells me you've seen someone in the lift who wasn't there. His voice sounded more accusing than he meant it to, and Peter shrank. Oh, not now, he said, truthfully enough. Only sometimes. Your mother told me you always saw it, his father said, again, more sternly than he meant to. And do you know who I think it may be? Caught by a gust of terror, Peter cried. Oh, please don't tell me. Why, you silly boy, said his father reasonably. Don't you want to know? Ashamed of his cowardice, Peter said he did. Why, it's Father Christmas, of course. Relief surged through Peter. 
"'But doesn't Father Christmas come down the chimney?' he asked. "'That was in the old days. He doesn't now. He takes the lift.' Peter thought for a moment. "'Will you dress up as Father Christmas this year?' he asked. "'Even though it's a hotel?' "'I might. And come down in the lift. I shouldn't wonder.' After this, Peter felt happier about the shadowy passenger behind the bars. Father Christmas couldn't hurt anyone, even if he was, as Peter now believed him to be, his own father. Peter was only six, but he could remember two Christmas Eves when his father had dressed up as Santa Claus and given him a delicious thrill. He could hardly wait for this one, when the apparition in the corner would at last become a reality. Alas, two days before Christmas Day, the lift broke. On every floor it served, and there were five, six counting the basement, the forbidding notice, out of order, dangled from the door handle. Peter complained as loudly as anyone, though secretly he couldn't have told why. He was glad that the lift no longer functioned, and he didn't mind climbing the four flights to his room which opened out of his parents' room, but had its own door too. By using the stairs, he met the workmen. He never knew on which floor they would be, and from them gleaned the latest news about the lift crisis. They were working overtime, they told him, and were just as anxious as he to see the last of the job. Sometimes they even told each other to put a jerk into it. Always Peter asked them, when they would be finished, and they always answered, Christmas Eve at latest. Peter didn't doubt this. To him, the workmen were infallible, possessed of magical powers, capable of suspending the ordinary laws that govern lifts. Look how they left the gates open, and shouted each other up and down the awesome lift shaft, paying as little attention to the other hotel visitors as if they didn't exist. Only to Peter did they vouchsafe a word. But Christmas Eve came, the morning passed, the afternoon passed, and still the lift didn't go. The men were working with set faces and a controlled hurry in their movements. They didn't even return Peter's good night when he passed them on his way to bed. Bed! He had begged to be allowed to stay up this once for dinner. He knew he wouldn't go to sleep, he said, till Father Christmas came. He lay awake, listening to the urgent voices of the men, wondering if each hammer stroke would be the last, and then, just as the clamour was subsiding, he dropped off. Dreaming, he fell adrift in time. Could it be midnight? No, because his parents had, after all, consented to his going down to dinner. Now was the time. Averting his eyes from the forbidden lift, he stole downstairs. There was a clock in the hall, but it had stopped. In the dining room, there was another clock. But dared he go into the dining room alone, with no one to guide him, and everybody looking at him? He ventured in, and there at their table, which he couldn't always pick out, he saw his mother. She saw him, too, and came towards him, threading her way between the tables as if they were just bits of furniture.
not alien islands under hostile sway. Darling, she said, I couldn't find you. Nobody could, but here you are. She led him back, and they sat down. Daddy will be with us in a minute. The minutes passed. Suddenly, there was a crash. It seemed to come from within, from the kitchen, perhaps. Smiles lit up the faces of the diners. A man at a nearby table laughed and said, Something's on the floor. Somebody will be up for it. What is it? whispered Peter, too excited to speak out loud. Is anyone hurt? Oh no, darling. Somebody's dropped a tray, that's all. To Peter, it seemed an anticlimax. This paltry accident that had stolen the thunder of his father's entry, for he didn't doubt that his father would come in as Father Christmas. The suspense was unbearable. Can I go into the hall and wait for him? His mother hesitated and then said yes. The hall was deserted. Even the porter was off duty. Would it be fair, Peter wondered, or would it be cheating and doing himself out of a surprise if he waited for Father Christmas by the lift? Magic has its rules which mustn't be disobeyed. But he was there now, at his old place in front of the lift, and the lift would come down if he pressed the button. He knew he mustn't, that it was forbidden, that his father would be angry if he did. Yet he reached up and pressed it. But nothing happened. The lift didn't come. And why? Because some careless person had forgotten to shut the gates. Monkeying with the lift, his father called it. Perhaps the workmen had forgotten, in their hurry to get home. There was only one thing to do. Find out on which floor the gates had been left open, and then shut them. On their own floor it was, and in his dream it didn't seem strange to Peter that the lift wasn't there, blocking the black hole of the lift shaft, though he daren't look down it. The gates clicked too. Triumph possessed him. Triumph lent him wings. He was back on the ground floor with his finger on the button. A thrill of power such as he had never known ran through him when the machinery answered his touch. But what was this? The lift was coming up from below, not down from above, and there was something wrong with its roof, a jagged hole that let the light through. But the figure was there in its accustomed corner, and this time it hadn't disappeared. It was still there, he could see it through the mazy crisscross of the bars, a figure in a red robe with white fur edges and wearing a red cowl on its head. His father, Father Christmas, Daddy in the lift. But why didn't he look at Peter? And why was his white beard streaked with red? The two grills folded back when Peter pushed them. Toys were lying at his father's feet, but he couldn't touch them, for they were too red. Red and wet as the floor of the lift, red as the jag of lightning that tore through his brain. That was the classic from L.P. Hartley's Someone in the Lift, as read by Jason Stubbs.
Born in Staffordshire, England, Jason moved to America in 2000 to continue his career as an electronic engineer. Married with two boys and one girl, he lives in a suburb of the Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas Metroplex. Hobbies include movies, video games, mountain biking, American craft beer, and motorsports. That's Formula One, not NASCAR. He enjoys reading sci-fi and horror fiction stories and started listening to podcast audio stories when his commute to work took over an hour each way. Thank you for the read, Jason. Our third story of the evening was written by J.B. Lewis. J.B. Lewis has enough pen names to fill an anthology. One name covers nine smutty romance novels, unfortunately none of them shades of gray. Another name covers a slew of nonfiction science articles written for Highlights and Muse magazine. Because Lewis teaches at a major university and studies primate behavioral ecology and earthworm ecotoxicology, a third name covers almost 30 scientific research articles, including the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. When Tales to Terrify picked up Lewis's first foray into horror, the author tried really hard to make any of the above names fit and failed. Lewis would like to dedicate the story to the late Lawrence Santaro, whose podcast reminded her how much she loved horror. And now, J.B. Lewis's Gargoyles. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We really couldn't afford the vacation, and she was in no mood to appreciate it. But after two years of fertility treatments, our sex life was in the dumps. Actually, it wasn't just our sex life. Our lives sucked. Our relationship was no fun. 
Our marriage was on some serious rocks, and she was in no emotional position to help me save it. So, my heroic effort, skiing at Killington. Maybe the suggestion wasn't as dumb as it sounded. My old Jetta had broken down there one January before we were married, and we'd gone skiing while the mechanic replaced the alternator. The days on the slopes were glorious, and the nights in the cheap hotel were even better. When I suggested the trip, and she didn't object, I took heart. Maybe we could salvage the tatters of what remained. She didn't say much for the first two hours of the long car trip. All the way through Connecticut, only Billie Holiday's whiny voice filled the silence. I hated the sound, but I knew she loved it, and this trip was all about bringing her back to herself, to me. By the time we hit Massachusetts, she was humming with the music, and hope did something painful to my chest. When we reached Brattleboro, she actually asked me to stop at a rustic pub advertising microbrews, and the hope in my chest moved to my veins. Maybe all we needed was some time together, away from the house and the jobs and the friends and the hormone injections, away from the room that would perfectly make a nursery. Oh, hell, I thought, I'd be happy to quit my job and relocate to this town, pressed as it was against this cold river, if it meant I could have my wife back. After burgers, black and blue for her, barbecue for me, she suggested a walk around the town. I couldn't remember the last time she suggested we do anything together, and she just suggested two things in a row. At this point, I would have agreed to ice fishing or wool spinning. Built on the side of the river was a big red building, its bricks gleaming in the afternoon sun. She set her sights on that. From a distance, it struck me as charming. Up close, well... To say it wasn't an anachronism isn't fair. To say it sat on the wrong continent wasn't fair either. But I can say this, it didn't fit a Yankee landscape. Gargoyles looked down from the eve of the second story. Nothing Notre Dame here. These creatures oozed adorableness. They were fatter and more googly-eyed than the standard fare. Instead of menacing their admirers with evil glares and sharpened fangs, these Vermont gargoyles teased with playful smiles. Weirdly, they lacked veiny bat wings. The artist had given these creatures whimsical bird wings. The stone had been carved so skillfully that some of the feathers looked real enough to fill a down pillow. The first monster had been carved with crossed eyes and robin wings. The second one had oversized ears, an underbite, and swan wings. By the time we spied the third one, this one carved with hawk wings, my beloved wife was back. She mimicked the goofy face, raising her hands above her head to imitate its incongruous antlers. I pulled my lips to copy the fourth one, and she laughed so hard I couldn't help but laugh too. She grabbed her camera and started photographing each one. Instead of isolating herself, as she'd done every day for the last two years, she showed me each photo, giggling. She named one Martin, another Neville. We chose Elmer and Esmeralda for the two that seemed to be holding hands. I took the camera from her and she struck a gargoyle pose, hands as claws, tongue sticking out, eyes laughing. I snapped the button. She'd never been so beautiful, so full of life, so like her old self. I wish we could have frozen ourselves in that moment of time. But, instead, we turned the corner around the back of the building to see the final gargoyles. 
I still had the camera focused on her face. I'm not much of a photographer in general, and I wish I hadn't been much of a photographer in that moment. If wishes were horses. I snapped a photo of her face as she saw the final gargoyles. The change was so sudden, so dramatic, that I didn't register it at first. Her silence grabbed me before her expression did. In fact, I didn't look at the photo I snapped in that heartbeat for days, months. When her laughter quieted, I dropped the camera from my eye and looked up. Two gargoyles remained. Well, three, really. The first looked at its stony mate with an expression of fear, dismay, and... I don't know. Desperation, probably? It looked alive as anything. It had hands, veined human hands, and it reached toward the other beseechingly. But its eyes, the set of its jaw. It looked like the minute it got what it wanted, it would flee to another world. And the second gargoyle? It had long fangs. Even from two stories below, I could see the saliva dripping from them. I mean, I, I knew it must have been ice. Icicles hung everywhere in Brattleboro but the shiny teeth made the stony creature look like it slavered. Its mouth was open, poised to devour the thing in its hands, and its eyes were rolled back in anticipation. Of course, the thing in its hands was a baby. What else could set my wife back so stunningly? It wasn't a baby gargoyle either. I mean, it was carved from gray rock. It was surrounded by other gargoyles, but it didn't have wings or horns or animal ears. It looked like a human baby. I could see its perfect fingers and its perfect toes, even from my vantage point on the ground. I could see the seashell shape of its tiny perfect ear. We've got to save it. Her whisper came so soft and unexpectedly, like downy feathers floating in sunbeams, that I jumped. How had she gotten behind me? Save what? I asked, although I knew what she meant. The baby. Her voice fluttered. We have to save the baby. I took her arm in mine, and we walked back to the car. She didn't balk. She didn't suggest that we get a hammer and a ladder and smash the thing to bits. Though I have to admit, I considered doing this. What would have happened if we had? On the slopes the next day, she was odd. In fact, the whole day was odd. A huge flock of crows filled the parking lot, their inky wings a stark contrast to the white snow that had fallen all night. Weirder, a flock of snowy owls covered the K-1 gondola. The blue-coated attendants tried to shoo them away, but they kept coming back, their white wings whispering as they flew away and back again. I was pretty sure that owls didn't flock at ski resorts or any place else. And my wife skied like a demon. Don't get me wrong, she loved to ski, and she skied well enough. She could look pretty good on Killington's blue slopes. She could get down the black diamonds and even enjoy them if they weren't too icy or covered with moguls. She wasn't Lindsay Vaughn or Peekaboo Street. Except on that day. She attacked the slopes. I couldn't keep up with her. She tore up wildfire. She tore up highline. I struggled to keep by her side, hating myself for feeling bested for feeling competitive with my wife. When she beat the U.S. ski team, the men's team, down conclusion, my masculinity quit feeling bruised, and something in the back of my consciousness started to worry. What the hell was happening? Do you hear that? 
she asked in his chairlift, while the wind made the cables whistle like some lonely bird. It's the wind. Not wind. She paused and cocked her head. She pointed behind us. Do you hear that? I shrugged. I didn't. What's it sound like? I'm not sure. She cocked her head again. Wings? Huge wings. I laughed. No rocks here. But even I could hear that my voice didn't sound right. She asked me on another chairlift, and I still didn't hear it. When she asked me on the skyship gondola, I didn't even answer. My thighs ached so badly from trying to keep up with her that I just didn't have the strength. She asked the people sitting opposite of us on the gondola, giving me a glance like she knew what they'd say. They, unlike me, her gaze seemed to say, had no reason to lie. But neither of the men, cool as hell in their snowboard gear, could hear it. You don't hear wings? She asked the one in fluorescent orange. You sure? He just shook his head. By the time we stopped for lunch, fatigue had me by the throat. I don't think I had ever skied so hard in my life. I was tired. I was aggravated. I didn't want to be sore. I didn't want to be so fatigued. And I didn't want to play weird games that I couldn't win. You know, I said, marching through a flock of blue jays. I had to shout to be heard over the raucous calling. We could adopt. Shit. I'd been planning on broaching the topic more gently, not spitting it out. I certainly hadn't meant to spit it out right next to the ski racks at Killington while complete strangers float around us and Blue Jays dive-bombed every one of them. What? She stopped in her tracks. Did you say? I said we could adopt. We could get a tiny baby from China or India or Honduras. I looked at her, expecting to be slapped down, hoping I wouldn't. But she stared at me in silence. Remembering the gargoyle, I continued, We could rescue a baby. Save it. She said nothing. I blundered on. In India, they have all these extra baby girls. In Russia, all sorts of babies are stuck in orphanage. We could save one. I looked at her and repeated myself softly this time. We could save one. You know what? Blue jay wings flickered around her head. They created an illusion of blue smoke. She looked like a priestess or some goddess of the birds. What? You don't get it. I get it. You want a baby. I want a baby? She shook her head in disgust. Screw you. Just screw you. She marched through the birds toward the restaurant. They flew behind her like a weird cape. That night, in the silence of the rented house, we made love with a ferocity I had never experienced. Not even when we first started dating in earnest and nothing was off limits. Back in the day, we'd made love in a cobbled alleyway in Atlanta while a jazz band played on the rooftop bar above us. I'd ripped her panties off her ass that night. Literally. Once, we'd made love in a hay round under a full moon while horses snuffed around us, neither of us noting the scratchy grasses beneath our skin. Another time, we'd made love outside our own patio, knowing our neighbors could come home and see us at any moment. But none of those times matched this night in its intensity. I tried to interpret her ardor as proof that things between us were improving. Maybe she'd reconsidered the adoption thing. Maybe she'd be able to set aside her burning desire to mother a child. Maybe somehow 
She'd found a way back to herself, and maybe that way included me. Afterwards, I kissed her neck, her brow, her lips. I love you, I told her, and then I kissed her lips again before I could hear her not answer. Afterwards, we climbed into the hot tub. Snow began to fall. Thick, fast flakes fell so thickly I could barely see where the yard ended and a state-owned forest began. I closed my eyes as the quiet closed around us. Magic seemed to cloak the moment. Slowly, almost reluctantly, I reached for the controls. Even that small movement shifted the night's spell, but the muscles in my legs began to unclench when the jets pulsed and I groaned in pleasure. You're sore? she asked. Aren't you? My back relaxed incrementally. I forced my jaw to relax. She cocked her head in a way that I'd never seen her do until today. You really can't hear that? she asked. The wings? Maybe it's my stomach, I tried to joke. I'm starving. No. She looked me in the eye. Focus. Listen. I took a deep breath, let it out, and listened again, expecting nothing. But I heard it this time. Something big moved high above us in the wind. It sounded like huge wings, flapping, sometimes fluttering. Yes, I said the word slowly as I peered into the darkness above us. I hear it. You do? She sounded really excited. Really? What the hell is it? You don't know? I peered toward the sound, fat snowflakes catching in my lashes. But I saw nothing but darkness beyond the roof line. Maybe it's an owl, a really big owl. Maybe. Something in her expression settled then. A portion of her anger melted away. Vapors rose from the hot water and created fat tendrils around her beautiful face. A pang of regret laced through me as I climbed out of the hot tub into the frozen snow in search of dinner. I wish I'd lied at Killington. Told her I'd heard the wings while we skied. When I returned to the hot tub with two glasses of wine and a plate of cheese and crackers, she was gone. I set the stuff on the patio table and called her name, squinting through the hard-falling snow. I tried not to panic. Maybe she was in the shower, but I hadn't heard her come in. I walked around the tub's side, shivering as the snow embraced my naked foot. Then I saw the footprints in the pale light coming from an upstairs window. Her footprints were smaller than mine, shoeless and vulnerable. They led not to the house, not to the driveway, but towards the dark woods. I called her name again, desperately, as loudly as I could. Owl wings beat above me just out of sight. Panic cracked my voice as I called again, but she didn't answer. Shivering with cold and fear, I followed the footprints to the edge of the woods, screaming her name. I begged her to come back. I told her I'd steal a baby for her. I'd steal ten if she wanted. I'd give her anything, anything she wanted if only she'd come back to me. She didn't answer. Neither did the oversized wings. Still, I waited for her, ignoring the cold as the snowflakes melted off my naked shoulders and accumulated in my hair and my eyebrows. I told myself she couldn't stay in the woods long, not wet and naked, not in the night, not without gear. By the tree line, I called her name one more time. 
I waited in silence for a reply, but I heard only the wind and the trees. I'd lost my ability to thermoregulate. My body shook with cold as I stumbled back to the house. I turned on all the lights and moved the lamps to the windows. She'd be able to see the light from the woods. She'd know I'd wanted her to come home. I dialed 911. When search and rescue arrived, I saw the looks they gave me. I let them comb the house, looking for signs of violence I knew they wouldn't find. Follow the tracks, I told them. That's the only way to find her. But of course, the Vermont snow had filled in the prints. Not even the small divots made by her heels remained. I sat in stoic silence the next day when the uniformed men and other volunteers snowshoed through the woods, dogs in tow. I didn't know if they were cadaver dogs or search-and-rescue dogs, but I didn't think it would matter. I didn't think they'd find her because I didn't think she was there. They looked at me and saw a murderer, and I felt like one. If she'd loved enough, she wouldn't have left me, leaving me nothing but frozen footprints in the snow. Because they couldn't find her body, they had to let me go. And because I had nothing left to do, I went back to the home that it wasn't a home anymore. I fell into a dark funk. I think it must have been the same kind of funk she'd been in, longing for arms and lips and fingers and toes that she just couldn't have. I went to work but couldn't engage. Additionally, my colleagues gave me sidelong looks. I know they wondered if I killed her. I wondered it too. I lost weight because everything tasted the same and I didn't want anything anyway. I forgot to do the laundry. I forgot to turn off the television. I forgot to pay my bills. But maybe forget is the wrong word. I mean, I considered doing all these things, but they didn't seem relevant. Who cared if my clothes were dirty and if the electric company turned off my power? I didn't. I don't know where my camera came from. I certainly haven't been looking for it. But one morning, I found it sitting on the table next to the sofa where I'd spent another night alone. It had been perched precariously on top of a beer can and peanut butter jar. I picked up the camera and started thumbing through the old photos. There weren't many, just the ones from Battleboro when I'd photographed my wife. I ignored most of the ones she had taken. The pictures starred only cold stone. But she'd taken one of me where I grinned like a lunatic as I imitated a gargoyle face. Had I ever been that happy? It looked like a photo from an alternate reality. The photos that really grabbed me were of her. In the first, sunlight caught her blonde hair, giving her a halo as she laughed. In the second, her goofy show of claws and teeth did nothing to hide her beauty, her shining eyes and inner glow. But the third... The third photo showed sheer disgust, horror even. Anguish pinched around the skin of her eyes. Sorrow flattened and turned her lips. I don't remember my wife ever wearing this expression, but she must have because I had the photo in front of me, a photo I had taken myself. I put the camera down, my heart pounding. I don't remember planning on taking the trip. I don't even remember getting in the car and filling it up with gas. But I must have done those things because my car had more than half a tank and it was exiting the first turnoff into Brattleboro with me behind the wheel. I drove past the restaurant with the hamburgers and microbrews, remembering that once I enjoyed those things a lot. My car found its way directly to the Gargoyle building, even though we had not driven there. We had walked. I parked 
I peered up at the stony art. It looked like I remembered it, and I ignored the ache in my chest. I pushed away, telling myself the pain didn't exist. But it did. I walked toward the back of the building, toward the three gargoyles that had horrified my wife and me, and I froze at the sound of wings. I spun around, knowing I'd see something huge soaring through the sky behind me. But I didn't. I saw nothing. Ignoring my thudding heart, I continued on my quest. I turned the corner, and I looked up. Three gargoyles remained, but they had changed. I know, I know that sounds crazy. Still, it's true. The gargoyle that had reached for the baby, like a supplicant, now held the infant in its graceful, human-shaped hands. The baby's tiny fist held onto a tress of the mother gargoyle's hair. Even from the ground, I could see the chubby lines of its wrist and the perfect shape of its nails. I looked at the remaining gargoyle, the one that had been about to devour the infant. The carving had changed dramatically from the one I remembered. The mouth had been carved mid-bite, was gone. Now the gargoyle appeared to be screaming. It held its clawed hands up as if defending itself against an invisible attacker, but its efforts had been too little, too late. Now an icicle lanced its eye, which dripped something that looked like blood, but must just be water. I stepped toward the kinder stone creature, the gargoyle with its baby. From my original position, its wings had been blocking her face from my view. Now I could see. The mother gargoyle gazed at the baby with adoration. Love softened her familiar eyes, curved her familiar lips. I breathed in the cold Vermont air, feeling oxygen in my body in a way that I hadn't in too long. I recognized the curve of the stone mother's cheeks, the turn of her lips, the sweep of her lashes. My wife finally had her baby. That was J.B. Lewis's Gargoyles, as read by Matthew Staten. Matthew Staten lives in Chicago and spends his time recording and mixing bands, playing guitar in his own band, and arguing with Rancid the Cat. He would love to narrate books or podcasts for you. Contact him at myvoiceinmyhead at gmail.com. Of course, link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Matthew. Now we come to our fourth and final story for the night by Paul Sheldon. Paul has been writing stories since he was a teenager prior to getting married. He had a couple of published in a local paper as part of a Halloween horror competition. Marriage and two small children have kept him away from the keyboard for a while, but he's recently been able to pursue his passion again. He's an avid reader of fantasy, horror, and historic fiction. He enjoys board games and spending time with his family. Now, listeners, just before we get on to Sheldon's story, this one has been a bit of a curse story for the staff of Tales to Terrify. Typically, when a story languishes in our archives before airing for a long time, it's because we have a lot of stories ahead of it. Simple as that. This one, we've had a heck of a time getting narrated. It has some complicated pronunciations in it that had been declined by a narrator or two, for which I blame no one. I could have narrated it myself, but I wasn't up for the challenge. The narrator, J.K. Shepler, did a terrific job, and I'm happy that we can finally get this one out to you. It's a good story. 
And one other item. If I remember that an author has had a story with us before, I'd like to call back to that previous story. And Paul Sheldon's name was quite familiar to me, but I couldn't find any previous stories that we'd aired and couldn't quite place it. And then, and maybe you got there faster than I did, there was a different Paul Sheldon who was also an author that crashed his car, crawled through some snow, and then had his feet bashed with a sledgehammer by my favorite actress, Kathy Bates. I don't think our Paul Sheldon's name is a nom de plume, so I think it's just an interesting coincidence. But let's listen to Paul Sheldon's Kath Pollug. I have only one wish, to take my father's rifle, point it at my enemy, and make a red ruin of his heart. It was the December of 1892 when Hugh Weaver took up the cry. A body, cold, badly mauled, lying in Sodger's field. All who heard him ran to investigate, a cold fear chilling anyone who couldn't immediately account for all their loved ones, myself included. Sodger's field lies outside the village of Penmaze, a small hamlet on the Isle of Anglesey. It's an old place, but age has brought little change to it. The thirty or so houses huddle close together as if seeking protection from the cold winds that sweep across the surrounding moorland. I had lived there all my life. Part of me loved the place, the wild, untamed views, low rolling hills, strange wind-bent trees and lonely granite rocks thrusting out of the wet ground. Yet still part of me hated it. It was too small a place for someone of just fourteen summers old. Living here felt like being held in a box. I wanted more. Often I would sit on the hillside watching my father's sheep, wishing for something to happen to change my life. Something to change the monotony of my existence. Something to break the dull routine. And something did happen. I met someone, and her name, Angharad Myler. I ran, jumping the low, dry stone wall, running toward the sound of whose voice. All about me others were running too, but I didn't see them. Couldn't make out what they were saying. I was too caught up in my own fears. When I finally saw who, he was talking to a collection of grim-faced men. They were gathered about a body which lay on the wet ground. It's the Myler girl, he confirmed to them, and there was much shaking of lowered heads. The chill inside me turned to shock, numbing my senses. Looks like she died a few hours ago, probably when we had that fog. Keep her loved ones back, they won't want to see. Some of the men talking with who moved forward to steer the girl's family from the scene. They used kind words and strong arms to guide them away, but no one stopped me. No one knew what she meant to me, what we had had together. And why should they? I remember her ruined body lying on the ground. Looking at her face, I could imagine just briefly that she were merely sleeping. I could pretend the blood-stained dress and ravaged torso didn't exist. Then the cruel reality struck me like a blacksmith's hammer. What did this? I asked, choking back a sob. A man I don't remember who replied. I would have said a wolf if I didn't know better, but ain't been no wolves on this island for hundreds of years. My best guess, a wild dog. But by God, what a beast. What? I took a moment to steady my voice. What will happen now? We get the poor girl's remains to the parish hall. We'll need the doctor to confirm the death. Then we gather together some armed men, see if we can't hunt this bastard thing down. If it's killed once, it could do again. I stared out across the moorland, a flood of emotions overtaking me. Disbelief was chief amongst them, frustration also, and an odd irrational feeling that I should have been able to do something to prevent her death. 
I clenched and unclenched my fists. It was hopeless, too late to change anything. So why could I not accept that? Except, I thought for a moment of the animal that had done this. I felt the sensation of sadness and frustration alter and morph into a new feeling, anger. The misery had not gone, it was still there, but now hatred of this beast took precedence, and my mind voiced one thought. Revenge. I turned sharply and walked away from the crowd of people in the field, away from the ruin that had been the girl I loved, back toward the village. I pushed open the door to my home. Father! I called. No reply. Father, you home! Still nothing. He must have been at Sodger's Field with everyone else. So much the better for me. I strode into our little cottage, grabbed my father's rifle from its place hanging above the fire, made my way to my father's bedroom, and pulled an old battered wooden box from beneath the bed where he fancied it well hidden. But it was a poor place to conceal something, particularly when the house's other occupant is an inquisitive youth. I had uncovered its whereabouts a long time ago. I worked at the simple lock with my small pocket knife, and after a short time heard a satisfactory click. Lifting the lid, I retrieved the treasure within, a handful of bullets. I collected a coat, an old neckerchief my father kept in a drawer, his flat cap, and then left by the back door. Nobody saw me leave the village, rifle slung over my shoulder. I had no doubt about my ability with the weapon I carried. Over the last year, my father had occasionally taken me onto the moors on a Sunday afternoon to hunt rabbits. It had proven to be a good shot, even if the rifle was still a little heavy for me. You might think I had no idea where to go, no idea how to find this wild beast. After all, it had plenty of time to flee the scene of its hateful crime. You would be wrong. True, its den was unknown to me, but I knew one who might show me the way. One man wise in the knowledge of beasts and their behavior, Alan Ambrosius. Alan, the lone man, a hermit who lived in the craggy land of the north. He came sometimes to the village to sell animal furs or odd charms he had made, little things crafted to protect folk from evil spirits. Sometimes he came just to beg favors. The villagers often showed him sympathy and bought his pitiful wares or even donated what little they could. It was more than a day's journey to his home, and it was late afternoon. I quickened my pace, grimacing, seeds of antipathy continuing to germinate in my heart. The rain fell lightly but persistently, the grey cloudy skies matched my mood. I turned up the colour of my coat and thought of better times. I remembered a summer's day five months ago when I had first got to know her. Of course, in a sense, I'd known her all my life. In a village the size of Pen Maze, there are no real strangers. But I'd only really got to know her properly on this day. Before that, she was just another face in the village crowd, someone I might say hello to but not really engage in conversation. I was sat atop one of the hills that clustered about the east of the village, watching my father's flock and whittling away at a piece of wood, trying with little success to shape it into a squirrel. In truth, it looked more like a sick slug, but I persisted. There was little else to do up there on my own, and I needed something to alleviate the boredom. I was just considering giving up on my work and starting a new piece of wood when I saw her below me on the slope, walking alone and collecting flowers, Angharad. She was the daughter of Bran Myler, one of the village's more prosperous farmers and an important voice on the village council. The father and Bran did not see eye to eye. There had been a disagreement about land ownership some time before I was born, and as such our family seldom spoke. I chewed on a long stem of grass as I watched her on her morning stroll. She was my age, a little plump, and had a limp which was quite pronounced, the result of some childhood injury. She struggled up the hill's sharp incline as if in defiance of her bad leg. 
she noticed a wildflower growing in amongst the grass, a small jewel in a sea of gently waving green. And as she bent down to pick it up, she lost her footing and went tumbling down the slope. I have no doubt that some folk my age would have found this sight of a girl falling down a hill rather amusing. I'm glad to say I was not one of them. Before she had died a few years ago, my mother had instilled me with better manners. She had been a rare one, my mother, the daughter of the village priest. She had made sure I got a good education. Certainly a better one than most of the children in our village had. I spent a couple of evenings a week with my grandfather being taught how to read and write. So mildly amusing though the scene was, I did not laugh. Instead, I leapt to my feet and ran down the hill after her. I soon caught up and found her nursing her right leg. I saw what happened. Are you all right? I asked carefully, coming down the hill to her aid. She looked up a little shocked to see me there. Oh, it's you, she said. Her naturally rosy cheeks were even more flushed than normal. I found myself a little taken aback. I had never realized how pretty she was. Are you all right? I repeated, offering her my hand. Yes, I think so. More shocked than anything. She gave a wistful smile and gingerly took my hand. Gently I pulled her to her feet, and as I did so, she gave a small mouse-like squeak of pain and fell into my arms. I was suddenly uncomfortably aware of the warmth of her body, the smell of her long brown hair, a clean smell, pleasant. She quickly pulled away, but continued to hold on to my arms for balance. No, no, I'm not all right after all. I think I might have twisted my good leg. Cursed luck, it'll be a struggle to get home. I looked at those dark brown eyes, at the smattering of freckles that were scattered like seeds across her nose and cheeks. Suddenly I knew I wanted to get to know this girl better. Don't be silly, I can help you home. Here, put your arm around me. I was surprised at my own confidence. Normally I'm quite awkward around people I don't know well. You think me silly, she teased. I think you're clumsy. I laughed. She smiled at me, and it was a smile that dazzled me, like staring too long at the sun. She put her arm around me, and together we started toward the village. What about your da's sheep? They'll be fine, a tough lot. They can do without me for a bit. If you're sure, I am certain. Together we walked home, and as we walked, we talked and talked and talked. And by the time the village came into view, we had agreed to meet again. Evening drew near. A flock of geese flapped its way across the grey sky. Their mournful calling seemed to match my mood. About me the cold winter wind rushed over the moorland, shaking the sparse heather and gorse. It was getting colder. My father's sound advice kept coming to me. If you find yourself on the moors alone at night and can find no place to make a fire shelter, just keep walking. Even if all you do is pace about in circles, keep moving. For if you stop, you'll freeze to death, certain sure. I wasn't sure I could keep walking all night. My long trek had drained me of most of my energy. I was exhausted. I was beginning to feel as I must stop and risk freezing when I noticed a light not far off. Its glow was like a warm, inviting beacon. They quickened my pace. Knowing there was no cottage in the area, I assumed it must be a campfire. Perhaps a drover had made camp for the night and would be glad of a companion, although I did not think I'd be much company in my present mood. It soon became apparent this was no drover's camp. The fire was quite large, surrounded by twelve or so wagons, some covered with straining canvas, others wooden constructions, some plain, some painted with gaudy designs. This camp belonged to gypsies. Furthermore, I knew these folk. I recognized their caravans. They had stopped by our village a week or so ago. They had crossed from the mainland by the Great Manai Suspension Bridge. My father had traded with them. Indeed, I had spoken with their leader, Gallius Cawley, a few times, 
and found him very friendly. As soon as I was close enough, I hailed the camp. Ho oh, there! Two figures, lookouts, came striding toward me. They were broad men, men who were toughened from years of travel, hard men, men I didn't recognize and would do well not to upset. Who is it? asked the first man. The moon lit up his face, revealing a cruel pale scar on his left cheek. It's just a child, said his companion. He had a large nose and thinning hair. A child with a bloody gun, replied Scarface, looking at me as if I might bite. I mean no harm, I reassured them. That remains to be seen, Scarface said doubtfully. Please, I'm a friend of Gallius Cawley, your leader. He knows my father. I only ask you to take me to him to speak with him. I see. It was Big Nose who spoke this time. Friend you may or may not be, but certain sure you're as mad as a March hare wandering about the wilds this time of night. Don't you know it's abroad? I don't care. I'm not scared. It was the truth. I didn't, and I wasn't. Whatever's out there, I want it to find me. Big Nose laughed. Definitely mad. Mad as the moon, Scarface chuckled. What the hell? You can see Gallius. Maybe they'll know what to do with you. Sure as hell I don't, Big Nose said. Gallius was sat before the great fire in the centre of their camp. He was a tall, thin man with a wiry strength that was not immediately apparent. Muscles like slender powerful cords of iron were stretched over his frame. His hair was grey and he possessed a short, carefully managed beard. By his side sat his wife. She too was thin, but somewhat shorter than he was, with dark eyes and an olive complexion. Beside her sat their daughter, his wife in miniature. She was perhaps a year or two younger than myself. The sheep farmer's child from Penn Mays. I remember you. Your father gave us a good price on a lamb. An honourable man. It brings you all this way on your own at such a late hour. I didn't know what to say. I had come here for the warmth of their fire and not thought that I would be interrogated. Foolish, really. I should have known that they would want to know I was out alone, so far from home on this benighted moor. Should I tell you the truth? Perhaps they would help me. Tell me of any strange sightings. Hadn't Big Nose spoken cryptically of something being abroad? But Gallius thought well of my father, perhaps if he realised I was out without permission, and hunting a dangerous animal to boot, he might decide to return me home. I spent a few moments struggling for what to say, to admit the truth or conceal my purpose with deceit. Deceit won out. My father sent me on an errand to a local farm, but I tarried too long hunting for wild fowl and became lost in the dark. If you would be so kind, Mr. Cawley, so kind as to let me sleep at your fireside, I'm sure I'd be able to get my bearings in the morning, and then I'll be on my way. Gallius looked at me. I felt as if he were weighing my words, testing them in some inexplicable way. Had he the wit to cut through my lies like so much dead foliage and come to the garden of truth that lay beyond? Finally, he said, Your dad was fair with us, not all are. It'd be remiss of me to see his kin left out alone in the cold. Thank you, I said, both surprised and relieved at the success of my lie lying didn't come naturally to me. I was brought food, a stew, a mixture of mutton and vegetables. It was a simple meal, but to my cold, exhausted body it was most welcome. Gallius was a good host. He told me stories, asked the right questions at the right time, and introduced me to a great many of his folk. By the time I'd finished my meal, and for the first time since Angharad's death, I felt some peace. This was not to say my sorrow had gone away, it still haunted my spirit like some immovable phantom, promising misery and angst at some future time should I ever lower my guard. But at least for a short time I was distracted. All about the campsite the bonfire lit up the painted wagons. 
rainbow pattern somehow enhanced by the flickering flames and the moon's pale glow. I decided to question Gallius. He and his people might very well know something useful. It might save me a journey to Alan's home in the crags. One of your men said there was danger on the moors. What did he mean? I asked. Almost instantly Gallius's mood became heavier. Let us not talk of such things. A cold wind rose from the north, blowing through the camp and making many of the folk, myself included, draw their coats tightly about themselves. Please, I would like to know. A girl... I paused for a second, my throat dry, my eyes stinging with salty tears. A girl from our village, well, she was attacked and killed not long ago by some wild animal, a dog maybe. No one it was sure, really. I thought you might know something of it. Something wanders at night, something different, something we'd not seen before. Gallius's tone was grim. It attacked and killed one of our horses two nights past. We heard no sound. But in the morning a fine stallion lay dead, mauled and bloody, not more than twenty paces from where we slept. A good steed, too. It deserved a better fate. I'm sorry, I said. Some of my folk claimed to have seen it, a shadow running over the hills, a strange creature. They could not say what it was, but I don't believe it was a wild dog. No dog to bring down a stallion, certainly not without awakening them the camp. If not a dog, what then, a wolf, a bear? I asked. Well, better said... Those animals had died out in our lands long ago, hunted till none were left. Old Betta was the oldest woman in the village, so old even she couldn't count her years. This great age brought with it an impression of great wisdom, and many villagers placed great stock in her words. And she's right. No such things roam Anglesey any more. Indeed, all Britain is free of these creatures, but for a few held in zoos, and they might as well be dead, to my way of thinking. No, this was something far worse than a wolf or a bear. Then what? I was beginning to feel an unwholesome chill running down my spine. It was a feeling I usually got before a ghost story. The sort of tale shared by friends on dark, unforgiving evenings in dim, lamplit rooms. Nothing the natural world ever produced, Gallia said. Them that saw it could not make it out, but they knew it was no natural beast. Nothing natural moves like that, nor calls out the way it did. Did they say where it went? I said. A sudden eagerness filling my voice. Gallius must have detected this eagerness, and perhaps something more, for he looked at me suspiciously. Then he looked at my rifle. Close to this girl, warrior. Hi. You have the look of one who's heartbroken, Aisha spoke up. Her voice was gentle and soothing. It's hard to lose a friend so young. I decided to remain silent, not wanting to betray myself further, and just stared into the fire. Its licking flames were hypnotic and seemed to want to draw me away from the camp, away to some dreamlike place. Unharred, I could see her face in the red and amber glow, her eyes blazing. My heart skipped in my chest, her mouth moved, forming words, trying to say something. Her face looked sad and worried. I leaned closer, trying desperately to hear her voice. Don't be foolish, you can't fight what's out there. Gallius's voice snapped my attention back to my immediate surroundings. And I can't knowingly let a child wander into danger. We owe your father a debt of friendship, Aisha said. I could kill it, I growled, my bitterness getting the better of me. And so why shouldn't I? It deserves to die. I inwardly cursed my loose tongue, so much for remaining silent. Aisha's eyes seemed doleful. Hatred is a poor master, and those who follow him often find his promises false. 
Ah, you should listen to Maya. She has a good head on her shoulders, Galia said. Anyway, what sort of man would I be if I let a friend's kin risk injury or death? Aisha, sensitive and understanding, rested her cold hand on my arm. The pain will get easier. Let her go. She'd not want to see you hurt. Rest here tonight. Tomorrow we'll take you back to your village, Galia said. Mourn for your friend there, amongst your family and friends. But for all their kindness and years of experience, Galius and Aisha were wrong. For me, the pain will never get any easier. Not until this beast lies dead at my feet. This I know is a certainty. Indeed, I've never felt more certain about anything before. I couldn't let these people take me home. Once my father found out what I had done, he would beat me. Worse, he would lock away the precious rifle rounds. Lock them securely in a place I can never get at them. Then how would I send this beast to the dirt? How would I give Angharad the justice she deserves? No, I can't let them take me back. I considered running straight away, running out into the darkness, hiding in the wilds. But there were too many people in the camp. I knew I'd never make it. I needed another course of action. I must look again to my ally, Deceit. All right. My voice was hoarse. Tomorrow I'll return home. A sense of relief seemed to pass through Gallius and Aisha. I felt bad. They're good people and I didn't like lying to them. But I have no choice. I decided to stay with them for one night, share their fire, and get some much-needed rest. Aisha smiled. You're making the right choice. Gallius nodded his agreement before saying, I for one had enough of this grim talk. There's no topic for a night such as this. Let us try to lift our spirits. Onus, fetch your fiddle and strike up a tune. An elderly, stiff-limbed man clambered into one of the wagons and came out carrying a battered old fiddle. He brought it lovingly back to the campfire, cradling it like a mother cradles an infant child. He thinks more of that tarty old thing than he does his own wife, chuckled Gallius. Onus brought the instrument to his chin and began to play. As he did so, Aisha and her daughter started to sing. A merry song, a traveller's song. A song of winding lanes, green fields, lush woodlands, and warm sunlight. It lifted the spirit of the gypsy folk who joined in, their voices rising as one, as if to drive back the cold winter winds and the encroaching darkness. They sang for some time, before one by one they retired to their wagons to sleep, or simply curled beneath blankets by the fire. I lay down, my coat pulled tight about me, feeling the cold wet ground sucking the heat from my body. I felt exhausted but unable to sleep. The tension in my body seemed to sit in my limbs rigid. It made my mind race. I was set on leaving before first light, creeping away while the camp slumbered. But what if they had set a guard, some sharp-eyed youth, to watch the camp all night? Or what if someone lay like me, unable to sleep? Would they alert Gallius to my leaving? A guard could at least be avoided, but a sleepless traveller was another matter. So I lay fretting, until dawn's first light kissed my cheek. In the end, it was surprisingly easy. I simply stood up, slipped quietly into the wilderness. There was no guard, no lightly dozing individual ready to be roused at the slightest noise. Within no time at all, I was out of sight of the wagons and continuing on my journey. The sun was hot. It was a glorious day, a day to be thankful for what you have, and few people were as thankful as me. I sat with Angharid by the side of Hlinberic. Hlinberic! is a small pond hidden from our village by a small stretch of woodland made up mainly of oaks and alders, filled with bluebells and roguish squirrels. This spot had a reputation as a place young lovers visit when they wish to spend time together away from prying eyes. 
We had walked together secretly almost every day for two weeks. Each time we met, my feelings for her grew. But I could not judge how she felt about me, dared not hope that she saw me as anything more than a friend. We sat together, shoes discarded, feet dipped in the wonderfully cooling water. Do you see that duck there? She pointed a pale freckled arm out across the water to a fat, scarred, cross-eyed waterfowl ploughing circles in the pond, driving away any other duck that dared to come close. Yes, vicious-looking thug, isn't she? She's old, that one. I came to this pond last summer for a picnic with my family, and my ma tried to feed the duck some stale bread. But that beastly thing ate nearly all of it. If any other duck tried to get near the crumbs, it pecked at them and drove them. Like I said, a vicious thug, I replied, watching the unpleasant creature as it tried to clean its shabby feathers. When my ma ran out of bread, it started to chase around, Angharad continued. What did you do? Very little, except roll around on the floor laughing. Miss Myler, how could you abandon your mother in her hour of need? I joked, grinning broadly. She smiled. It was too funny, the sight of a grown woman screaming and being chased around by that mangy old fowl flapping its wings and quacking for all it's worth. We both laughed together. I could just picture her mother all prim and haughty being chased by that crazy duck. What happened in the end? Oh, it caught up with her eventually, pecked her on the ankle, then waddled back to the pond. A brave creature, really. Not many people can take on my ma like that and come out on top. She was right. Her mother had a reputation for being a tough old stick with a sharp tongue, and I would not have wanted to cross her. Yes, a very brave creature. We should name it. Let's see, perhaps... As I spoke, I turned to look unharred in the eye, my mind searching for some witty name. But before I could say any more, she kissed me. It came out of the blue. I'd wanted to kiss her since we first met, but I'd felt shy, clumsy, awkward, and scared of rejection, so I'd never tried. She pulled back and looked me in the eye, and with that first kiss all my shyness evaporated like dew beneath the rays of the sun. I leaned in eagerly and kissed her again, longer this time. I was aware of the heat of her mouth, of a slight murmur coming from the back of her throat. I savoured every moment, not wanting it to end. Finally we pulled away from each other, breathless, and for a while we sat in silence. "'Your father and mother would never approve of us. No one in the village would,' I said. Besides, your father hates my father. My da's and ass and my ma well, she taught me to fight for the things I want. She may change that opinion where I'm concerned, I replied regretfully. She took my hand, firmly squeezing it. My ma's in no praise to criticize you. Oh no, Gramps hated my da when he first started courting my ma. It's hardly the same, I replied, a little surprised by this revelation. Boys thought they got on well. Oh, they settled their differences over the years. But to start with, he hated him. Too poor, too common, not good enough for you. That's what Gramps told my ma. Too poor? But he's the wealthiest man in Pen Mays. He is now. Being married to ma meant he took over the farm when Gramps passed on. Before that, he had very little to his name. But my ma fought hard to be with him, and I shall do the same. She declared, and wrapping her arms around me, she kissed me again. But my ma fought hard to be with him, and I shall do the same. Those words still ring in my ears, but whereas before they had filled me with a sense of hope, now they choked me with sadness. I will fight too, but my opponent is different. It's wild, deadly, and cannot be fought with words and a stubborn resolve. My will was stronger than ever. I would find Alan. He would tell me where my enemy could be found, and then I would hunt it down, wolf, dog, bear, or Satan himself, hunt it down and kill it.
I had been walking for half a day. I was tired. Damp had crept into my shoes, causing my feet to squelch with every step I took. I had seen no sign of Gallius and his folk since leaving their camp that morning. I had no way of knowing. If they had attempted to follow me, perhaps they had tried and had lost my trail. Perhaps fear of the strange predator had kept them in camp. I wished them well. They had meant the best for me, and I felt guilty about leaving them without a word of thanks. Maybe if I can slay the beast, I'll be doing them a favor, too, helping to protect their animals and children. And maybe that will be a better sort of thank you. Maybe. I was still dwelling on the gypsies and my time with them when I stumbled and fell, my foot catching in a rabbit hole concealed by the grass. The island is full of the bloody things. I'm usually good at spotting them, but a wandering mind combined with exhaustion and a fair amount of self-pity can have a blinding effect on the eyes. I landed safely, though, unhurt and with just muddy hands and a wounded pride to show for my lack of concentration. Around me the shadows were starting to lengthen. The western sky was taking on an orange glow, like the embers in an untended brazier. In the distance I could make out sharp, cruel rocks rising from the moorland, towering like granite giants above the few lonesome trees that dotted the landscape, their surfaces pockmarked with caves. Eventually this rugged terrain gave way to bluffs, battered by the winds of the Irish Sea. It was no place for a man to dwell, but it is here that Alan Ambrosius made his home. In the distance I could make out his dwelling, like a wooden limpet it clung to the base of a crag, part shack, part cave, old, squalid and lonely. It should have seemed like the most uninviting place in all Anglesey, if not the world. But to my eyes it was like a bejeweled trinket, a prize I had longed for, the purpose of my whole journey. For if the occupant of the strange hovel could not direct me to my prey, then surely no man could. I rose to my feet, clutching my rifle till I felt I might crush my handprint into the wooden stock. I repositioned the flat cap on my head, fearful an errant wind might seize it and carry it off into the bleak sky. Alan Ambrosius, I whispered. I hope you're as wise as folks say. Too late for visitors, came the brittle voice from the other side of the door. But I must speak to you, I said again, knocking as hard as I could. Must you now, came the irritable reply. I've been travelling for two days, I was shouting now. And again I banged on the door. If reason would not cause him to open up, perhaps they could annoy him into letting me in. I shan't go till you see me. Sling your bloody hook and stop the bang and you'll have me door down. I banged harder till my fist hurt. Little flurries of pain running up my arm. Please, someone in the village was attacked and killed by a wild animal. I've been hunting it. I need your help. There was a moment's silence. I heard a boat slip on the other side of the door. Slowly it opened. The smell that rushed to greet my nostrils nearly made me wish it had not. Midden-like it clawed at my throat, causing me to cough. It took me a moment to compose myself a moment before I was able to focus on the figure before me. He was old. Dark chestnut eyes glittered mischievously out of heavily wrinkled features. Yellow skin like dry old parchment, grey greasy hair, and what must have been two days' worth of stubble. I waited with bated breath. I had expected him to rant at me, to answer the door raving and shouting, but he just looked at me sadly. So young, he muttered, and reached up a hand to touch my cheek. Instinctively I pulled back. You're not at all what I expected. May I please come in? It's very cold outside, I said, hoping sympathy might gain me entrance. I wish you had not come. He shook his head, as if to emphasize his regret, then stepped aside and gestured with his arm for me to enter. But someone always does. 
strange home contained just one room, half cave, half lean-to. A fire pit near the center of the room was the only source of light. A hole in the roof allowed the smoke to escape. Alan gestured again, this time to a stool. I sat myself down and held my cold, chapped hands before the welcoming warmth of the fire. You should return home. Rest here tonight if you must, but go back to your family in the morning. Leave this thing be, he warned. I cannot run home like a whipped dog. I've made a vow, I replied. This is folly. You do not know what it is that you hunt. His voice was grave. Then tell me what it is, I asked, intrigued. I wanted, no, needed to know what had murdered Angharad. I needed to picture the thing in my mind, draw it into focus, so I might have something to channel my rage at. It's Kat Palak. Kat Palak. I rolled the word around in my mouth as if doing so might give me a better understanding of the thing. Its story is an old one. He drew up another stool. I could almost hear his old bones creak as he settled down at my side. I expect you've heard it. I have not. Tell me, please, I said. He picked out a dirty fingernail. Outside, the cold air crept in through the poorly sealed walls. Nocturnal animals spoke out. Their cries seemed different from normal. Uneasy. They know what wanders abroad, Alan said, cocking his head to the side and listening to their noises. Every fifty years it comes. I'm old. Folk call me a cunning man, and no doubt that is why you sought me out. I remember when it came before. I was younger then. It killed a farmer's wife, a pretty woman, and then killed her husband as he tried to track it down and slay it. My master was still alive at the time. He was a great wise man. It was he who told me its story. It was an ancient tale set long before the Romans slew the last of the Druids. It began in Cornwall. The great sow Henwen was pregnant, and it was prophesied that the Isle of Britain would suffer for the birth of her offspring. A mighty warrior decided she must die, and thus prevent the prophecy coming to pass. So this cut pollock is what? A pig? I interrupted. No, listen, will you? You young'uns always want to rush a story. No, it was no pig. But its mother was a pig. How could it be otherwise? I said this is long ago. Times are not like today. Old gods walked the earth. Weird magic corrupted nature. I shook my head doubtfully, but decided to hear him out. I did not need to believe his story. I just needed to know where this thing might be located. And I was still hopeful that he might tell me. Alan continued. Where was I? Oh, yes, a warrior, a great warrior, call up Colfrey, decided to slay Henwen. But she fled over the sea. She swam to Wales. He gave chase from the south of that ancient land to the north. He followed her till she arrived at Lanfair in Orphan. There Cole found her beneath a great black stone, and it was there she gave birth to a kitten. Cole took this tiny ball of fluff and threw it into the dark waters of the Manai. It would have been best if she had drowned there as was intended, but fate is seldom kind to the children of men. She survived then, I said. Yes, she swam to Anglesey. It was called Innismon in those old times. She was found and fostered by the sons of King Pollock. They reared her, but they could not tame her. She grew to a great size, way beyond that of a normal cat, some say the size of a pony. A tale recite, black fur, yellow eyes, and claws that could slice through the toughest armour. Oh yes, there was no tame in that one. She became known as Kat Palak, or the Claws of Palak. She escaped from the king's sons and caused devastation across the isle. Village folk slaughtered, herds of cattle decimated. 
Many warriors were sent to try to hunt this terrible beast, but all were slain, torn apart by those great claws. You see, this creature was strong and clever, and clever in a way no base animal ought to be. Finally, news of this great cat reached the court of King Arthur. King Pollock sent envoys asking for help to rid his land of what he called the Dark Beast. Arthur sent no less than his own stepbrother, Kai, to aid the people of Inismon. Kai spent many days searching, but in the end it was Cot Pollock who found him. Kai had reined his horse to a tree so the animal might drink from a local ford. He himself had dismounted and was cooling himself in the water, so when the great cat finally appeared, he was not only dismounted but without his armour and shield. With just his sword, Kai fought the terrible foe. Slash of claws, slice of blade, gnash of teeth, thrust of iron point, long they toiled in combat until finally laced with a pattern of scratches deep, cruel and painful. Kai swung his blade in a mighty arc above his head and brought it down, delivering a mortal wound to that terrible opponent. Thus it was beneath the rosy skies of twilight that Cat Pollock died. Alan looked at me, his eyes intense, his voice almost a whisper. I felt the hairs rise on my arms. But Cat Pollock was no normal creature, and its spirit could not be neighed down as easily as his body. You see, a desire for vengeance makes a soul restless. It broods in the great in-between of existence, and so it waited, building its hatred of mankind, marshalling it until it had enough strength to return to the land of men, return to wreak havoc. And so once every fifty years she comes, targeting the weak to draw out the strong, to instill the same need for vengeance in them, waiting for them to seek her out and then killing them dooming them to share her fate, trapped in the in-between, unable to move on, unable to find rest. I understood Alan's plan. The story had clearly meant to scare me, to send me running home with my tail between my legs, and I freely admit I had been a little scared by his tail, but not enough to divert me from my goal. Where is this beast now? I asked. Near, just to the north. I have seen her shadow roaming the bluffs. She's waiting. Waiting for you. That you won't have to wait long. Determination steeled my voice. Young fool, have you heard nothing I said to you? It's a trap, set by an evil spirit cunning, wanting nothing more than to condemn others to its terrible fate. I didn't believe him. Ghosts couldn't kill, pigs didn't give birth to cats, and no cat I knew was the size of a pony. It was nonsense, meant to scare me, to send me fleeing home. But Alan had given me the information I needed amongst all the tall tales. The beast, Cat Pollock, had been seen on the bluffs. Could it really be a great cat, though? Not the size of a pony, but still large, like the ones I'd heard of in Africa and India. There have been stories in the past of farmers claiming to have livestock carried off by black feline shapes. They whispered of exotic animals escaped from a zoo, or of rich men bringing home rare creatures from strange, far-off lands, keeping them as pets till they grew too large to care for, then releasing them into the wild. It seemed more likely than a phantom beast from legend. I'll kill this thing. I sounded firm, brave, even though part of me was quaking at the thought of what waited outside. You cannot kill that which is already dead. No man can, Alan said, sounding both desperate and angry. I stood up. You forget, I'm no man. 
From outside the cry of an animal, a part growl, part scream, drifted to us. It seemed filled with hatred and was repugnant to my ears. It locked Alan in place, and for a moment it seemed to freeze my limbs too. Then the noise died away, carried off on the zephyrs. I marshalled my courage and snatched up my father's gun. Heed my warning, girl. Alan's voice was firm. The only thing you'll find out there is your death. Wait here till morning, then return home. Grieve for your loss. In a few days, Catpalog's power will wane. She'll not be seen again for another fifty years. Please, I know how this will end. I've seen it before. I didn't heed his words. All I could think of was Angharad, her life robbed, taken away so swiftly. I could feel my heart racing. My blood flared red hot like a smith's forge. I snatched up my rifle, threw open the door and strode out into the night. The moon was so bright, it illuminated a rolling landscape with its silver radiance. I took it for a good sign. God was on my side. He had provided me a way to see my enemy, a heavenly glow, ethereal, cold but clear. My confidence was strengthened as I hurried toward the bluffs. I remember the cold wet grass whipping at my ankles, the constant noise of the waves breaking in on the shore. I loaded my rifle. It took a couple of attempts. I was nervous. The bullet seemed unwilling to slide home into the breach of the weapon. Then the mist rolled in. It came from the sea, slowly but surely, dense enough to obscure my surroundings, clearly defined shapes slowly becoming hazy and uncertain. I felt anxious. In places the bluffs could be steep, or still, my prey now had a means to aid her concealment. Around me the mist swirled and danced, making the shadows move. On several occasions I raised my rifle, certain some creature had just darted past. I'd squinted hard, trying to get a clear view. Was it the beast, or just some mockery of mist and darkness? I set my teeth and kept moving forward up the steep incline. To my left, I knew the land dropped away to the soft sand of the beach below. I stepped carefully. With visibility this poor or wrong step could send me crashing down, slope to injury or death. Out of the mist echoed that strange and earthly cry, the cry that had so chilled me in Alan's hut. It seemed to come from every direction at once. I spun around, trying to locate its source. At first I could see nothing, and that heinous noise tormented me, working my nerves to the very edge of their durability. Then my enemy revealed itself. Slowly it took form, easing out of the shadows. It was undoubtedly a cat. But what a cat! This was no household mouser. It was the size of a small horse, eyes burning orange, a panther, black yet insubstantial. The mist seemed to drift through its huge form. It drew its mouth back, showing hateful fangs, pale knives capable of tearing a man to pieces. It seemed to me it was grinning with morbid satisfaction. Then it disappeared. I don't want you to think it turned and ran off. It most certainly did not. It simply vanished, as suddenly as a candle extinguished on a breeze. One moment it was there, the next it was gone. It spun round in circles, searching, desperate, my bowels turning to water. I was scared, more scared than I cared to admit. It was a primal fear, deeper and more soul-crushing than any I had felt before. Where are you, devil? I hissed. As if an answer came that infernal cry. It seemed to taunt me, to challenge me to find its source. 
as regret my decision to hunt this thing alone, of not heeding Alan's advice and staying safely in his home, or of accepting Gallius's offer to escort me back to my village. What madness had brought me out here, on this godforsaken night, to this bleak stretch of coastline? A sleek, deadly form raced out of the night toward me. I raised my rifle and fired. The sound of its crack deafened me. The rifle kicked back into my shoulder, causing me to stagger. I knew I could not have missed, not at this range. But my shadowy opponent came on, bounding with a lethal grace, muscles rolling beneath that smooth, dark fur. I knew it was hopeless. Knew I would never have time to reload and fire again. But I tried anyway and as I fumbled desperately in my pocket for another bullet, it struck. I thought it would leap on me, hit me with all the weight of its great body and carry me to the ground, but it did not. Instead, at the last possible moment, the creature turned aside and simply lashed at me with one of its mighty paws. There was bruising, burning sensation in the stomach. I was winded, unable to get my breath. I saw its great back tail disappear serpent-like into the mist. The rifle slipped from my grip, my hands grasped at my stomach. It felt hot, wet and sticky. I fell backwards. The ground disappeared beneath my right foot. I lost my balance and fell, arms waving wildly, the world spinning around me. I landed on a bank of wet sand. The noise of the sea was louder than ever in my ears. The mist had gone. I lay on my back, staring up at the star-pricked heavens, breathing shallowly my belly a cauldron of boiling pain. I tried to call for help, but could only manage a dry groan, a pitiful noise. Besides, even if I could call out, who would hear? I passed no cottages, and had seen no other person since leaving Alan's dwelling. No, the only person going to help me was myself. I considered trying to stand. Lying here vulnerable like this was not wise. That great black beast might come again, and I did not wish to be its next meal. And yet I was so tired. My body ached for rest. My vision was darkening, and the desire to sleep was almost impossible to resist. I tried to stay awake, but gradually the glorious nothingness enveloped me and carried me away. I awoke suddenly, jolting up. It was daytime, of that I was certain, even though the sun was obscured by fog. I slowly got to my feet. The pain in my stomach had gone. I could hear the sea but it did not seem as loud as it had during the night. Perhaps the tide had gone out. I no longer felt cold either, and all my fear of the night before was gone too. A gust of wind drew the fog aside like a ghostly curtain, and I saw her, unhurried, standing on the wet sand some distance away, beckoning me to follow her. Uncertain of this strange apparition, but desperate to see the face of my love just one more time, I started toward her. She smiled. I felt myself flood with joy and started to run. Then I heard its call, that spiteful noise, part growl, part scream. It halted me in my tracks. Hatred took me in its vice-like grip. It was the reason my beloved stood before me as a spirit. It was the reason I could never hold her again. I spun about. Somewhere up there on the cliff it waited. Cut Pollog, the bane of Inismon. I had made a vow to kill it and kill it I must for the sake of Angharad and the many others like her who it had slain, and would slay in the future. I walked back toward the cliffs, toward my enemy. I glanced behind me once more and saw Angharad's sad form disappear. The curtain of mist drawn before her. 
Then I started to pick my way upward, following a worn trail. I have wandered long, hunting my prey. For how long, I cannot say. Over grey hills, through brown woodlands, and across multicoloured fields, through rain and sun, I know it is close, and soon I must surely catch it. But always it is just out of sight. Every now and then, when I am about to lose heart, I hear its call. That sounds so familiar, yet so repellent to the ears. Stirring again my anger, fueling the hatred and bitterness. And so I carry on with renewed vigor. I'll find it, and I will bring it down. I will have my vengeance. The Statement of John Bohampton, Psychic Medium, taken at the seance at Penmay's Parish Hall on 15th January, 1924. That was Paul Sheldon's Kath Pelug, as read by J.K. Shepler. Jedediah Kalanu Shepler was born in Texas. He spent formative years in Northern California, then returned to Texas to get an honors degree, summa cum laude, in anthropology from the University of Houston. He lives in the traditions of both the European Renaissance and feudal Japan, and believes diverse pursuits and interests build keen minds and bodies. He is, consequently, a student of martial arts, a practitioner of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and is a surfer, artist, and filmmaker. He's acted in and produced music videos as well as served as a rigger, greensman, propsman, and stunts coordinator. He also dabbles in music. Jed has worked in logistics, dog training, security, education, and other jobs, and says that he is not entirely sure... He's qualified to do anything, but that he is a great respecter of fine storytelling and of the tellers of tales, and that he is very proud to contribute his narrations. Currently, Jed is working on a book about late 19th and early 20th century glass bottles found in Houston and of the forgotten history that is all around us and just under our feet. He lives in the Houston Heights of Texas and likes cats and dogs, but doesn't have any, and sometimes he scribbles short, humorous movie reviews that no one reads that last bit by stopping by his site at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Jedediah. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever you found our podcast. Our show was produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin and special music following our show from Songs of the Pumpkin Boy. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
If you've enjoyed this show and any of the others in the District of Wonders, please think about taking out a monthly subscription over on Patreon. Any little amount helps just to keep the stories coming and the shows rolling on. We want to bring out the best stories out there and deliver them to you free. But we certainly need some help and support. Please think about popping over to Patreon. A little as two ninety nine a month would be such a great donation. Just want to say thank you so much for all your support over the years. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.